0: everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. This is a continuation of our episodes with Joel Bolivian on Christian ethics. Joel is a High Point Church attender and a philosophy PhD student at UW-Madison. This week, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Becca Cooks, another High Point attender and former staff member, are here to talk with Joel about racial injustice and ethics. If you have any questions from listening to this episode, or if there are any ethics questions that you want us to talk about with Joel, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening.
1: Hey everyone, this is Nick Gibson. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. We're doing a mini-series on Christian ethics um, with Joel bolivian and our host today who i did not give the uh job of uh doing the intro because i roped her in last minute is becca cooks who was on staff at high point church but now is on staff at the upper house and is immersed there in the university community doing that ministry so guys let me just let you give a second of reintroduction of yourselves and then the uh the topic we're going to focus on today is racial um racial justice justice as it relates to issues of ethics related to race and culture and society. And so there we go. So guys, introduce yourself and then Becca is going to host and like keep us on task and push us on questions and stuff like that. Here we go.
2: Wonderful. Thank you. Um, as Nick said, my name is Becca and uh, currently I'm the hospitality and event coordinator at Upper House. But uh, before that I was working at High Point and before that I was an intern at High Point. So i um, I'm Uh, very invested in this community and uh love the church a lot um i'm also speaking as a biracial person half uh white half african-american and so um as you can probably imagine a lot of the racial conversations and strife have been hitting my heart so um i feel honored to be part of the conversation and hosting your guys's talk today
3: and my name is joel bolivian I feel a bit jealous because I've never been an intern at High Point. I never worked at High Point, so I'm really jealous that Rebecca had that opportunity. Um, But I get to do other fun things. I'm a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, and my research interests focus on the concept of privilege, um, justice, and for a long time almost entirely on questions about uh, the existence of God and how we could know whether God exists or not.
2: Well, Joel, as a side note, if it makes you feel better, when I became an intern at High Point, one of the first things that Nick told me was all of the previous interns have cried in my office at some point. I expect you'll get to that point too. Great. And so that was like an awesome way to start. And I'm pretty sure it did happen at one point. There were tears at some point. So, I mean,
1: Everybody cries.
2: Everybody cries. So maybe an internship is not what you needed. I don't
3: know. I think I could use a good cry in Nick's office. I feel like (laughs) that could be helpful sometimes.
1: Yeah. It's not, it's not exactly devil wear, wears Prada crying. It's designed to be therapeutic crying. Like good.
2: (laughs) Wonderful. Well, um, Again, as mentioned, uh, we've been doing a mini series within Engage and Equip with Joel on Christian ethics. Um, and so far, uh, we've talked about moral relativism and poverty, affluence, and generosity. Uh, so we were planning on doing a third ethics question on gender justice, but given um, pressing cultural questions surrounding racial injustice with everything that has been going on. uh, We thought it would be wise to switch the topic and talk about racial injustice and ethics. So um, I will turn it over to Joel to maybe frame this topic a little bit more for us, uh, and then we can dive into some questions.
3: Thanks a lot, Rebecca. So yeah, we're talking about racial injustice and race issues. And as everyone is aware, a couple of weeks ago, Um, A black American, George Floyd, uh, was killed uh, after being subdued by the police and in the wake of his death and in the wake of the death of other black Americans leading up to that, there's been a massive national outcry against racial injustice in the United States. And we're living in a really interesting moment. It's not that these sorts of events haven't happened before. Ferguson was also a moment in U.S. history where there was a massive outcry in the United States against racial injustice, but this one seems to be novel in its scope and the way that cities all across the United States seem to be living in solidarity and responding in solidarity to, uh, injustices that, uh, target the black community. And this is also something that's picking up attention internationally. And so as Christians, our, our concern is to be a part of what God is doing to heal the world, to bring about kingdom healing, kingdom hope. And so this is, this is like the context that we're, we're jumping into these conversations about justice, about injustice, about oppression, and kind of trying to wrestle through these questions. What ought we be doing and even feeling and even learning as Christians? Um, So, yeah, that's sort of the idea.
2: Great. Well, just from that, let's jump into uh, a good, very broad question initially. What do we or what do you mean by justice and then conversely injustice?
3: Yeah, I think justice is such a tricky concept. Um, One thing we like to do in philosophy is to try to figure out the essence, as it's often put, the essence of a concept. What does it entail? When is it manifested? And I think that justice is one of those concepts that's actually really tricky to define, to give a really neat and carefully packaged analysis for. Um, and so, I'm I'm just going to hedge and just say, like, I don't really have a great definition for justice. But I think at a minimum, justice involves something like seeking to uphold the rights and dignity of human beings and not just human beings you might think that there can be justice for animals as well insofar as animals um have certain rights i mean not everyone thinks animals do have rights but you might also think that animals have a certain kind of dignity that ought to be respected so i think justice is is at its essence very concerned with rights very concerned with dignity and very concerned with the well-being of creatures um but that's a really like vague definition, um, so I don't know that that's all that helpful. But I guess I would, I'd want to know from you guys, like Rebecca uh, and Nick, how would you describe justice?
2: My uh, my answer or thought is also pretty vague, but I wonder if you can even look toward well-being. So if you um, or uh, flourishing, so is is justice happening? If you are seeking out the full flourishing of the, the subject that you're hoping uh, would be experiencing justice. Um, that's very fluid and uh, doesn't follow any rights or rules or regulations. Um, and that's what makes it hard, because how can my thriving then not impede on somebody else's thriving, right? And that's where those limits become helpful. Uh, but I'm wondering if that plays into justice as well.
1: Yeah. yeah i think i think biblically speaking there's a kind of a variety of definitions of justice i mean f- just functionally speaking i kind of like i, th- I think it's attributed to aristotle uh, justice is giving each person their due but i think within the bible um there's a number of different logics of justice so one is would be close to what we might refer to as libertarian justice which is that y- people have in- rights as individuals bearing god's image and you can't impede upon them negatively but there's also other concepts of, of justice that are more positive and prescriptive. For example, the, the golden rule is put forward as an idea of Christian ethics that's, that Jesus claims is rooted in justice, I think, which is to say you should treat other people the way you would like to be treated, that that's what is another person's due. What you think you deserve is therefore what you think they deserve, if you were to think clearly about justice. So I think the golden rule is, is given by Jesus not as a – Simply a dictate of grace, but as a dictate of justice. I also think that if we read the Bible carefully about how grace functions, grace is not disconnected from the concept of justice. Though there's a freedom to grace, grace also makes just demands and damns those who don't accept them and respond to them. For example, in John 3, it says that Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn the world. That's John 3, 17. so that the world might be saved through him. But then it says, but to the one who doesn't believe in Jesus, they stand condemned already. That is apart from their sins, like just in not accepting Jesus, they stand condemned because they haven't accepted God's one and only son. That is to reject the the cosmic act of grace of the incarnation of the son of God, his death and resurrection for them is itself a damnable offense. That is rejecting grace can be damnable, right? Same thing in Romans 12. Mm -hmm. If you love your enemy and feed them and help them The effect of that, if they don't repent, is that you're heaping burning coals on their heads. I've read plenty of commentaries that have tried to contort that into saying, that's a nice thing, you're giving people fire in the ancient world, that was really nice. That's not what the idiom heap burning coals on people's heads means. It means destroying them. Meaning that if you are gracious with people and they reject it, they do something that is blameworthy, that is, they have offended justice. So Christians need to understand that even grace itself has certain dynamics of what you might call analogical justice, justice by analogy. Because God has done something for you, shouldn't you do something for someone else? The easiest example of this is in Matthew 18, the parable of the Unmerciful Servant, where this servant owes his master like $10 million and he begs to be forgiven. He is forgiven. Then he goes and he finds somebody who owes him $150 and starts choking him. And gets him thrown in prison for not paying his debt. And th- th- the way that ends is not the master says, hey, I forgave you. You ought to forgive that guy. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, I guess I should. That's not what happens. What happens is that the, the servant that was unforgiving has his debt reinstated. And he is not only damned and imprisoned, but tortured. And so the result there is, is that if you reject grace, grace rejects you. Because grace has built in itself a kind of demand of justice by analogy right? That's what the master says. I forgave you. Shouldn't then you have forgiven this other person? So justice in the Christian worldview has both the libertarian idea of negative rights and respecting them, but also these other internal um, demands rooted in our indignity. And even in the concept of grace itself, God's free gift to us demands that we freely give. There's this place where Jesus literally says, freely you have received, freely give. That's not just a, a call to grace, but a demand of justice.
3: Yeah, and I think too that I think that was really insightful. Another aspect of a sort of Christian view of justice is the image of God, the fact that humans are image bearers. And I think that often the Christian call to do justice, to seek justice is rooted in the fact that human beings who are oppressed are oppressed as image bearers. There's something about the image of God that's being suppressed and harmed and damaged by oppressive structures. And that image in every human being is like, it's what confers value. It's what gives deep, rich value. And yeah, there's something seriously wrong about suppressing and hindering the image of God in people. Uh, so I think, yeah, something about caring for and protecting and championing the image of God in all people is part of the Christian call for justice as well.
2: And then it also takes out that re- the reciprocal nature of justice between people um, where you can't say, oh, you need to treat me justly for then me to treat you with justice, almost looking at it as fairness as opposed to justice, but coming from, you know, our Savior has been ever so just and gracious, Um, and it is out of that gift and out of his image that we are then acting, not necessarily in response to those we're interacting with.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. So then, uh, what do you think is involved in the Christian teaching of justice that if Christians would really embrace it today, we could see some good steps towards unity in the church?
3: Nick, do you want to answer that one first?
1: No, you're the guest, Joel. I was going to let you answer it first.
3: <laughs> you're so hospitable. I love it. Um, I think it's a really good question. And I think this question is actually really hard for me. Because I, when I interact with a lot of, say, evangelical Christians... I get the sense that they care a lot about justice. I get the sense that they understand what it means somewhat to be made in the image of God. They, they see that that's really valuable. They have strong moral convictions. They see that God is part of, God is on this this project to re- to restore creation to bring wholeness and shalom to creation and they're like they want to be a part of it. I see that in a lot of evangelical Christians. So in my mind it feels like a lot of us are getting our theology sort of right. I don't know that the tweaking there is needs like I don't know that we need tons of tweaking and improvement there. Of course we could always use more like theological enrichment and insight. But for me the real concern is about not knowing the concrete actual historical details and current details about injustice. In other words, it's not so much that our theology is wrong, it's our history is wrong. It's not so much that our theo- our theology is lacking, it's that our awareness of the lived experience of oppression is lacking. And I think that's why a lot of evangelical Christians have struggled, myself included, to take steps towards racial reconciliation. Our theology is totally fine, it's just that our theology hasn't been paired with the realization of actual lived racial injustice and racial oppression. And so for me like I think I would just want to tell people like yes keep keep thinking about a biblical theological concept of justice but on top of that like understand history, understand sociology, understand what's happening in the black community and what has happened to the black community historically. And put your theological concept of justice that you have a somewhat good grasp of, put that to work by learning the actual historical details of injustice that have assailed oppressed people. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I think that's interesting, Joel. I was just uh, reading a chapter out of a book called Prophetic Lament, um, talking about lament and going through lamentations. And it was outlining different types of lament. And one component um, is just the need for truth for lament to happen and how the funeral dirge will um, express this well, and that they just acknowledge this is what's happened. This is, as the book says, the dead body that's laying before me. So whether it's the Um, sacking of Jerusalem by Rome or um, this racial strife or um, the loss of control um, from COVID and anything like that to be able to acknowledge this is actually what's broken and dead and wrong before me. And this is the history of how we got there. Here's just the truth. Um, And that enables the rest of the lament to happen. Um, and so this book even argued that that itself is a biblical topic as well.
3: Yeah. That's so rich and so insightful. I I do think that, that learning a proper theology of grief and lament is actually really important here. I think that myself included, a lot of white people have been quick to want to um, – ask this question like, okay, what can I do to address racial injustice? What kind of actions can I take to Mm -hmm. overturn these sorts of systems? And I think that's a great question and we need to be wrestling with that question. But here's a question I haven't been quick to answer. How can I grieve? And how can I lament the fact that our nation has perpetuated and been a part of very serious oppression? And so, yeah, I think that's a great point. Learning that lament is a virtue, that lament is part of what it means to be the kingdom of God, to oppress people, to sit with them in their pain, to bear burdens with them, and sometimes to just be silent and to just grieve over the way that image bearers have been treated.
1: Yeah. So I, I think it's important um, to recognize that that's, that comports well with certain evangelicals' view of the world right? That like, this is so obvious. Oh my gosh, we should, I, you know, there's other, there's other evangelicals, I think that are the same churches with us who um, they believe in a, because part of this has to do with your view of human attachments, um, human society, how um, civil society works, those sorts of things. And um, so for people who, are we, we call it in this country being conservative which is kind of a weird way to describe it but essentially it's the idea that you believe that certain kinds of institutions are absolutely necessary for the flourishing of human beings and those need to have certain kinds of authority and authorities functioning in them and those are all going to be imperfect human beings and so all of these institutions are going to have a certain amount of corruption in them a certain amount of dirt and that is acceptable in order to have the good of the Administrative capacity of the of the, the, the thing, right? The, the, so if that's your default, right, then it's very easy if there is like if there is like a structural injustice for you to be less motivated about that, right? Because if you believe in the good of authority, you tend to be a little bit more prone to think that a totalitarian action is okay. Whereas if you tend to be more focused on like libertarian freedom and nobody getting coerced. You're going to be a little bit more touchy about that. So there's one of the things that Christians, I think, sometimes don't understand is how much we've been affected by the multi trillion dollar like mind shaping campaigns that have existed in our country from all kinds of different perspectives, whether it's, you know, the the, the leaning of universities and schools, whether it's the um, the talk radios or the or the Fox News or the CNNs or that there's like, like literally billions and billions of dollars are being spent. To sub persuade us about all these other things about human society, and they they tend we we tend to accept some of those because the Bible it isn't designed to be a political philosophy book or a sociological <sighs> philosophy book, right? And so so people read through it and they they don't pick up these kinds of principles there. We have to construct them based on our theology, and so it's very easy for like a lot of a lot of Americans, whether mostly white, but also like I mean, I was in a meeting with pastors today, and there was African American was like, all this systemic stuff is crap. Like, we need to wake up and realize what we need is personal revival. People need to take personal responsibility for stuff. And like, the he, th- thing is, he'd been in the military for like 15 years in which that is the worldview. The worldview is you are responsible for your own discipline. You need to do your job, etc. right? So so people have all kinds of different ways they're coming at these things. So there's a, there's a certain amount of people in the church who feel like they have a, they're like, this is the only way they're progressives. They look at the history of America and of of Western society and they say, yeah, there's stuff we got to change. There's stuff that has to get better. We're the best society in the history of the world though. America is exceptional in that like we fix these things ourselves. We were the first nation to abolish slavery. Like, and they go through all these things and they say, they say, we have progressed so much. This is like, let's not lose things like liberty on the basis of trying to fix these other things. So I think that there's some people, they have a naturally defensive response to claims of things like systemic, systemic injustice, what some people mean by words like white privilege and white supremacy, and so one of the ways that I think the church needs to come together is to like explain what we mean by stuff, and no. explain like in sense of with a sense of proportionality to it. So, for example, one example is the phrase "defund the police" right now. Right? There's not a lot of people who literally think we should not give the police any money and there shouldn't be any police. Right. What what a lot of those people, when you say, do you really want to defund the police? What those people say is, well, I mean, not. Well, no, what we mean is we, we want the police to be somewhat demilitarized. We want money that's going to the police to handle certain problems, really to go to other people to handle those problems and for those problems not to be handled by the police. But I mean, we're still going to have to call the police when there's like a homicide or like when we literally need somebody restrained so you know if and, and then like when you when white people hear that they go oh i guess that makes a lot more sense so we're we're talking about some of these concepts so there's there's essentially two human processes we're talking about one is um what is sometimes just referred to as the human process of empathy that's the kind of slick way to say it i have all kinds of problems with the, with the concept of empathy but as a human instinct and, and intuition that is that helps us to access the moral faculties of sympathy and caring for one another i'm 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 down with it, right? And so, and so in those cases, like literally hearing about other people's experiences sometimes are like is the most helpful thing. So what Joel was saying before about just like, I need to hear and listen to what you're saying and stand with you and be with you. I'm totally for that, okay? I'm for it. For a lot of other people though, they are trying to figure out what does this mean for society and life and, and how things are and all of that? Because most people of color, they're not content for a lot of white believers to be like, yeah, things have been bad in the past. Yeah, you suffered a lot. That's really sad. I feel really feel they want they, people are like, "Hey, I want my kids to do as well as your kids in school. I want my kids to be pr- prosecuted at the same rates." I want my, right? And people are kind of like, "Okay, what does that mean?" Right? Because every there's no group in America that that like statistically is the same as another one. Yeah. Even if you split up white people into 18 different categories by historic ethnicity, like mm-hmm. Italian Americans don't do as well as British Americans, right? And they do a little better than Irish Americans on some things and not as, like, no group is the same, right? And those differences are not necessarily rooted in race, structural racism, right? So people are like, what does this mean? And so one of the things I think has to happen is a lot of the lo- nomenclature that is getting used, like white supremacy, to fund the police. Um, privilege white privilege yeah. those kinds of things like they need to be defined in ways that people can have meaningful conversations about and one of the things um i think is important for more conservative christians is not to say what's the most maximal definition the most wokey person in the world is throwing in my face on cable news mm-hmm. such that i can summarily reject it and feel completely self-justified but what i encourage people to do this is what i do in my own life at least in my own life i take a question like a, a, a phrase like white privilege and i say okay what's the most minimal definition of white privilege i can think of putting together clearly and then i ask myself is that true right is does that have some compelling nature in my life and usually what i find out is yeah yeah and then i go okay how then i push it a little further and i push it a little further and i push it a little further until i find that i i'm not progressing right and then i go okay it, maybe that's where i should stop right or i say maybe i should also engage in some other conversations with some other people see if i should push it further so then i'll ask some of my my black colleagues i'll be like do i understand this like how, where are you on that right and there's always space like they always think i should go a little further i think i shouldn't they shouldn't go as far and but dang it we're a lot closer than we were and oftentimes that's enough so that we can agree on some stuff to do and to love each other better i think
3: yeah i think that's a, a really fair point uh I like that strategy. I, I think I want to go back to something you said earlier. I, it's interesting how you framed it. You said that I think you said that a lot of evangelical Christians maybe don't have as hard a time empathizing with historically oppressed groups, but what they're interested in is this question: like, what does this mean for me politically? What does this mean as far as action? What 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 needs to change socially? So they've got the mm-hmm. empathy right, but then they keep, like they, they start to slow down and start to have concerns about what this means politically. And I actually think, I think in my experience, and this is just anecdotal evidence, I think it's been the other way around. I think I've ran into a lot of white evangelicals, myself included, who as soon as I confront conversations about racial injustice, I immediately wonder, is this political? And I think this is one of the issues that we're facing is that we are so quick to politicize everything. Any claim of racial injustice, any claim of police aggression, any claim of Black Lives Matter, we immediately ask, what does what's going on under the surface politically is this a left thing is this a radical left thing does this mean i have to change you know am i being like invited to change my political stance on things and before we even get to that step of empathy and compassion and lament we raise the political question and 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 so that's just my that's just been my experience, and I would just invite any listeners who feel that way, who are who are concerned rightly about the political questions that are arising in the wake of Black Lives Matter and the wake of George Floyd's death, to just slow down, and first of all, remember that these are image bearers, human beings, who have historically been mistreated, and our first response needs to be empathy. Our first response needs to be solidarity, and then we'll get to those political questions. So. For any of yeah, so I I think everyone's experienced at least someone's let me push yeah. back
1: on that, Joel. Just no, I mean that's not like I disagree, disagree, but like just con- contextually, like one of the things Becca said earlier was, you know, in order to get the lament right, you have to get the truth right. Right? That that that's part of it. You have to say, this is what's happened, therefore I have the proper emotional response to it, right? If you get the truth right, part of what you have to do there, so if somebody ha- is a claimant, right? So let's say, um Let's say Becca Beck and I are friends, right? We are friends, obviously. But let's say Becca said, okay, this thing you did really bothered me, right? And um, so in, so in order for me to lament that right in the, that relationship about a sin, I have to be like, I did that, and that was wrong, right? And I, I think that one of the things that some people are dealing with is they. it's easier to look at the past- And narratives, historical narratives of those pasts have been established and we've been taught them and we go, okay, yeah, that's right. But then like in the present, people are kind of like, okay, wait, what, what, what is true now? And are they the same? Right. Cause I mean, there was African American in one of the meetings I was in really recently where we were signing, we were signing the statement that that said that there was white privilege and structural racism. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know what, man, when I was younger, when I was a younger man, definitely structural racism. Definitely. Right. He's like, I don't, I don't know about now. Now he wasn't saying there just isn't, he wasn't saying that, but he was saying, he was like, man, we got to have a sense of proportion here. Right. But that's also what what you end up doing when you're in trouble. Right. You, you like ask people to, to respond with a sense of proportion. You're like, dude, am I really? So, so you get this kind of, you get this feel from people where the, where they think, okay, if I admit to this truth, which is necessary for the lament, which is the first step, I'm conceding the fact that then is going to, once I lament, I've conceded the point. Now, once I've conceded that point, I don't know what these people are going to do to me with the point I've now conceded. Mm. So maybe I shouldn't even do that. And I think that because the political is so connected to the lamenting through the truth, the, the truth claim, that I, I don't see how as social beings we get away from that. Like at some point we have to admit I did such as. Such or I am vitally connected with a group of people that did such and such, knowing, because I've had that in my marriage. My wife and I are arguing, and I know if I concede a point to lament with her about it, she's going to then tell me to behave differently on the basis of what I just conceded. And if I go back and I say, oh, wait, baby, I, yeah, I went along with you on that thing, because I kind of agree, but I don't really agree. I mean, I don't think I should change my behavior. She's going to be like, well, then you didn't really lament with me. You didn't. You're not really hearing me. Is what wives often say to their husbands. I don't. Yeah. I don't know how you get out of that catch twenty-two. Well, either you admit it or you don't.
3: Yeah, um, I have some thoughts, but I also want to hear Rebecca and get her involved in this conversation. Rebecca, what are you? What are you thinking uh, about all of this?
2: Really, just taking it in. Um, <laughs> I. I think you had uh, mentioned perhaps before we started recording about a sign that you had seen at a a March um, that just said like, I am, I'm learning and I'm standing with you. Um, And there's something that's been very helpful for me to hear or to acknowledge that like, I am supporting you as best I know how as I'm simultaneously figuring out what I really think about this and how I find it appropriate to respond or engage. Um, So um, there was a solidarity march um, among a lot of the churches in Madison two Sundays ago. I went to that and um, it was very hard for me listening to the talks, particularly as a minority, to be like, this is good and right for me to be here. And I'm feeling solidarity with my brothers and sisters. But then to still listen to the talks and be like, I don't agree with that or what they're suggesting people to do, I wouldn't tell people to do that, or I wouldn't tell them in the manner that they're telling them to do this. And so feeling very torn, like, okay, is, is, is this wrong? So just how should I be feeling about this? How should I be thinking? And to be given the permission or allow myself the permission to say, I am standing here because this is good. I don't agree, but I'm going to keep standing here as we figure this out. Um, I'm going to keep Mm. listening to this story. I'm going to keep learning. um, And I am going to listen so well. And my hope is also that you will listen so well to me. Um, Mm. That's been helpful to acknowledge that both of those can exist at the same time. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I, I think that's important because I think a lot of things are true at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you can't exist in a world in which that's the case, it's very hard to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, Joel, did you want to make one more comment uh, before I kind of segue? Yeah. I think
3: think this, yeah, that was really, I mean, I think lots of good points being made here. The the sign that I saw at a, a march in Grand Rapids was listening, learning, standing with you. And it absolutely wrecked me in the best way. And I thought, what a great posture to have. And I think, Nick, just to go back to something you were saying earlier, I think you gave a really, I think, insightful, like, psychological, social, psychological explanation for the reaction of a lot of white conservatives. I think, you know, you put on your sociologist hat. It was really good. I think that that's probably right. I think that there's a kind of concern that arises about what this is going to imply for me as far as my lifestyle, as far as society, as far as politics. And those things matter but there's also something to consider here is that two thoughts. First, this isn't merely, maybe even primarily a political issue. This is essentially a humanitarian issue, a justice issue. These are image bearers who, when you look at the history, and this is why I want to emphasize the history, have been historically oppressed. And when we approach this and with our political senses heightened and like, you know, ping ultra, uh, like giving, giving ourselves overly, uh, sorry, when we overly fixate on the political questions, I think we forget that this is first and foremost a humanitarian issue, that real lives have been impacted by injustice. And as kingdom denizens, our response shouldn't be to ask the, the, the political questions first, but to ask the question of solidarity and empathy. And secondly, I would say this, that even if your explanation is right, we need to distinguish between explanations and justifications. It's true that I might not be able to escape having my political senses activated as soon as I hear about Black Lives Matter, as soon as I hear about defund the police, as soon as I hear about systemic injustice and privilege. You know, Those political questions immediately arise. But although that is the case, a response that's overly politicized isn't justified. I can understand why human beings are prone to do that, and I think there's something about the fall also in leads us to uh, to be fearful of change because it might require reform in our hearts and in our lives. But I think although that's the, that's going to happen, it's not justified. And I think as a as as a community, we need to slow down and ask ourselves: is there a just, is there an injustice here? Are there people who who whose lives have been Uh, Subjugated and and put under pressure, oppressive of oppressive structures, and that's a question about justice. That's a question about humanitarian rights and so on. And the political questions should come. I I don't want to I don't want to deny that, but I think our first response is to ask the question about whether there has been oppression, and that's why you know when we asked this question earlier, what needs to be involved in a Christian teaching on justice? My sense is we just need better history. We need more history. You know, when I talk to white evangelicals, like they get it. They get the, that uh, people of color are made in the image of God. It's that's not that's not a question for them. They understand that certain things are unjust. But what is a question for us is whether or not the long-term effects of slavery and the long-term effects of say segregation and racial disparities in the 20th century have continued to impact the black community. And that's a question that you don't answer by looking at the theology text. You answer by looking into history. So. I, I just think this idea of listening and learning is super important right now. Let's lower our political defenses and allow our humanitarian consciousness to be erased.
1: Okay, so let me. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Because okay, so I agree with you. I agree with you on the use on the importance of empathy and listening to other people about their experiences. And I think that that helps people feel the moral gravity of things that they have understood historically. So if you've learned in your history that like. Um, various peoples of color and even various subsets of white people in America, relative to their to when they immigrated to this country, like Irish people and that sort of thing, have been historically oppressed peoples, right? In different contexts, in different ways. And then, yeah, that's but that's pretty abstract. You know, we learn we tend to learn history as abstractions. And so then, when you talk to you listen to a person of color or a person who's a, have certain kinds of experience, is it means so much more to you? It's it's so different. And so there's a humanizing. Effect that takes something from the abstract and makes it personal to a human being you care about. I totally agree with that as a psychological imperative for us to find out how to socially love each other and to figure out what solidarity means. Agree. Okay. Here is my issue with with some of what I think you said. The, if you say not a political issue, a humanitarian issue, I don't think that that changes much because if you act, you say, okay, what act, what humanitarian actions should we take? Those are still policy actions. There's still decisions about what you're going to do to or for other people. Right. And that's actually where some of the disagreement lies. Like it, like, w- should we focus on the pathologies of poverty or should we focus on structural racism? Right. So there's a lot of black leaders and sociologists, people, people like Glenn, Glenn Lowry or um, Jason Riley or John McWhorter, um, you know John McQuade's a vote for Obama twice, right? But he's like, dude, he's like, yes, there is structural injustice. That's true. It's like being black is a little bit like being like an overweight woman in America, right? Like, yeah, it's an issue. People treat you different. It can be overcome, but the pathologies of poverty that are the result of historical oppression have completely different medicines than issues of like structural injustice that are like ceilings that black people can't get through because of white supremacy. And he's like, what's killing us. I mean, what these black leaders are saying, what's killing us is the pathologies of poverty. That's what needs our attention. That's where we should be focused economically and policy wise and so on. So even like when you talk about humanitarianism, what do people need from us? You're still answering like pretty complicated and in some ways, political questions about these things. And one of the things I think, I think wokeness tends to get wrong is it conflates The empathic humanization of other people and drawing them into a kind of um, humanized solidarity with clear thinking about how human beings really behave and act, economically speaking and functionally speaking, so that we do good rather than just feel good. Because most of the stuff, when I look at most of the world, most of the humanitarian stuff that we've done has been mixed at best and in many cases terrible and so, when people say a lot of stuff we were doing to try to help historically oppressed people has oppressed them more, right? I mean, Jason Riley's first book was called Please Stop Helping Us. And the argument of the book was that most of what we've done to try to help black people as white liberals in America has been catastrophically horrible for black people. And that's true even for black people. For, for example, Reagan's crime bills were voted for by the majority of the black caucus in both houses of government. They thought that these bills would make things better for black people. This is the same bills that that um, Michelle who wrote who wrote New Jim Crow, Michelle, whoever wrote the New Jim Crow was like, you know, Reagan the racist did the blah 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 blah. Well, maybe maybe Reagan was racist. Maybe he did it because he wanted to throw lots of black people in prison. Michelle, but then why did okay. the majority of both black coxes vote for it, right? Because they thought it would be good. They thought it would help black people. And then it turned out it helped some black people, and it was catastrophic for other black people because we because humanitarianly our solution. Just didn't work, and I'm not saying there wasn't white racism wrapped up in white support of those bills. I'm not saying that. Sure, I'm sure there was, but Black people also thought that that that, that was the right route too. So, one of the things I struggle with, and I think a lot of white people struggle with this, is if I agree to X, you're going to tell me to do Y, and I can't in good conscience do Y because I don't believe it'll help, or That we conflate the human process of of empathy in which we come into human solidarity with others to the idea that not only is the victim right about their victimization, the victim is also qualified to tell us what we should do, which I frankly think as a philosophical matter is categorically false.
2: I think uh, this is getting into one of the questions that we have uh, listed, which is just why do we tend to be so polarized um, in what we see as justice? Um, and and one of my thoughts that came up in relation to what Nick just said is there have been, you know, no one community is completely unified in how they think that you should move forward or what justice means. And, um, you also have people who are experiencing, um, hurt or frustration, on so many different levels that what is justice for them is still not going to meet the justice requirements for others. Um, So I'm thinking of a conversation that I just had with my mom, who's the white one in my family, and she was feeling very angry and frustrated with people telling her that um, the right or appropriate way to start seeking justice or to engage with this race thing is to be active on social media, Uh, condemning what's happened and to be marching to show solidarity. And if you're not doing those things, then you're not fighting for justice. And she felt so angry because that invalidated the years that she had spent, um, loving and learning and defending the Black family that she married into. And she's like, all of these people who are shouting at me um, to engage in this specific way to seek justice, where were you when I was trying to find a hair salon for my Black daughter to figure out how to do her hair? And where were you when I had to consider if I would have to like disown my birth family to marry this Black man? She's like, I have been here. And so her form of justice was in that prolonged fight and to continue that, but uh, that still doesn't change the fact that another African American member of her community would say, "No, no, no, justice is if you march." And so, just people's background experiences are also going to polarize just how we think justice should play out. Um, mm-hmm. But Joel, you respond yeah, to. I, that think too.
1: That, I think that's also relevant to what you said about the march here. Mm-hmm. Is that I was at that march too, right? A whole bunch. Of, I think Joel was probably there too. Um, a whole bunch of people marched because we believe it, that the death of George Floyd was unjust, mm-hmm. and that we believe that there remained remnants in the American police system that could mm-hmm. lead it so, something similar to happen again. And we wanted inordinate attention on that possibility, and we want, wanted to deal with it, right? But at the end, there were a bunch of speeches about all kinds of things, including policies that all of the black people I, t- I talked to didn't agree with. Right. And so the qu- the question is the solidarity of the March leads to the prescriptions of the speeches. Like that's part of the whole thing. Right. The, the March, the March on Washington that Martin Luther King led is not much remembered, but for the speech he gave. Right. And so, Part of the, that's part of the difficulty with solidarity itself is that when solidarity is li- linked to the action, then what it does is it brings those political questions into the act of engaging with solidarity through human empathy and sympathy. And what it does is it, it just, I think it just wrecks the heck out of that process. Yeah. But I think Joel is right that when you talk with people and you listen empathetically first, you can believe like your, your, your political beliefs may not change. Yeah, but those people's stories will still affect you in a way and open you up in a kind of way, so that you're you you can live in the present reality, and maybe even adj- make some adjustments rather than just be solidified in security of your pre-existing belief, confirming your priors, as people often say.
3: Yeah, I think that's really good. I think, and Rebecca, that experience that your mom had is super super interesting and i think it highlights the way in which yeah we have to be careful that we don't take these the outcry against racial justice to be unequivocally a particular political thing because there are lots of political voices there are lots of political suggestions lots of strategies in that mix some are getting more attention than others and that might that might be a problem it might not be i, I don't really know but but i think when we diffuse the the political tones of this and allow ourselves to see that although there are political dimensions, it doesn't strap us onto one particular political response. I think we're gonna take a, a better step towards racial reconciliation, towards racial justice, because then we can show up to a march and walk in solidarity with historically oppressed people and not be hyper concerned that this might, this might strap me to a particular
1: political bandwagon. It doesn't. Um, yeah. And so I, think, I you know, think it gets back to the pathology. Sorry, Joel. Yeah, go for it. You can continue if you want. I think that this gets back to a pathology that Christians should understand is bad, which is when was the last time you made a really godly decision when you were super angry? Right? What you needed was somebody to listen to you and to be there with you and to hear why you were angry and then to say, maybe, maybe don't do anything right this minute. Like, let's just deal with this anger first and then let's try to seek the will of god yeah and so much of american politics right now is using the energy of anger which is usually rooted in some form of dislike or hatred to give you this kind of the tidal surge that you need to move something and i feel as christians like we should know that that's just not there's nothing healthy about that um what what should be happening is we should be sitting and lamenting with each other and hearing each other and listening and then when we find that we love each other, then say, okay, what are we going to do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then you've got to get to that point. I, I, that's a conversation I was having with pastors today, that part of the fear, especially in the racial justice issue is, is that if you say, okay, look, I'm not making any decisions until we all get from anger to something else. The problem is, is that when we do that, you, what the flesh always does in human dysfunction is the minute the crisis is over, it goes back to its own status quo. That's what always happens mm-hmm. because when you're ungodly, you don't want to change, right? And so you just, the minute you can get out of what somebody's holding your face to you just go back to whatever it was before you see this, like a marriage counseling where the wife's like, you got to change this. And he's like, I'll change. And then she goes, okay, I'll stay. And then two months later, they're in your office. Cause he didn't change anything. Once she said she'd stay, he didn't change. And th- this gets back to the issue of trust. Can our, can our black and people of color and, and whatever else, Brothers and sisters in Christ, trust us to live for the good all the time, including in the wider social responsibilities, so that they they can they cannot demand in an anger what they can't get any what they know they can't get any other way. Yeah,
3: and I think the answer to that is going to be no. Where they're not going to be able to trust us to to ally with them to partner with them if if we continue to be insulated from the reality of racial injustice. I mean, I think one of the reasons why we're quick as white evangelicals to see injustice in other areas, say when it comes to sex trafficking, when it comes to abortion, but not when it comes to race issues, is because we're very insulated from racial injustice. It's just not part of our lived experience. It's not part of my lived experience. I mean, I, I started waking up to it when I just heard stories from my black friends, when I started reading really academic things. You know, it's not anything that ever like confronted me. And I think that's part of why we aren't sure what to do with these claims of injustice because in part, it's just not our lived experience. And so if the, if the black community is going to find allyship in predominantly white churches or with white people, I think that white people have to listen and learn and have to hear about the history of racial injustice. Otherwise I think they're always going to be a little bit puzzled when someone says, yeah, there's a lot of racial injustice. They're going to be like, Hmm, I get that injustice is bad, but what do you mean racial injustice? And I find myself having that experience all the time. I'm like, what do you mean racial injustice? And as I continue to listen and learn, it's not that I don't stop asking that question. It's that I start discovering that those claims are valid through and through. And so I think mm-hmm. we we need we need to keep listening and learning if we're going to partner well with Black communities. Um,
1: yeah, you know, Rebecca. Yeah, yeah I, I I think that and I I think that one of the things that is really difficult for and I, I can't say what this is gonna be for African Americans. Like I think that everybody I think that the flesh finds a way for sin in everybody. And I have no doubt among my people of color, brothers and sisters and neighbors, that sin is wreaking havoc in their hearts in a different way through their victimization as we speak, okay? I, I don't I'm not I, I'm not gonna be the healer about that. i I don't think I understand it clearly enough, and I'm not gonna presume to be the person who talks that way. From my experience, what i have found is, is that there is a difference between what i think i know about what can be done and what is happening all that stuff and my personal preference for my own race and what i associate with the culture of my racial group so like i am i am a huge fan of anglo-americanism even with all the history of everything i just in my heart i love the west I love its triumphs and achievements. I love, I love all those things. And so, when I hear attacked, I tend to feel defensive. Yeah. When I hear, I mean, even like I remember, I was listening to I think it's Jamar Tisby's book, um, "The Color of Compromise." Yes. Which I, th- I think, if you're not familiar with that history, it's very helpful. I mean, I'm an American history background person, so I'd heard virtually everything I've heard in the book so far. I am aware of. Um. And he only focuses on the negative. And I think it's important not to criticize the book too much because he does that. Because he says this is what he's going to do. At the very beginning, he says, I'm just going to tell you about all the bad stuff. And I, so I think it's fair. You just got to realize that's what he's doing. But I found like there were points where like I was like my heart was kind of like cheering for white people. Mm-hmm. Like while I'm listening to that book. Like there's, there's there's like there's an emotional attachment I have to that. That is, I mean, I don't, I mean, I I'm sure there's multiple ways to describe it. I'm sure racist is one of them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I like, I find like some of these experiences, like I have, I'm finding stuff out about myself that I didn't think I knew as well. It's not necessarily changing my views on economics and what will empower the black underclass, but it's affecting my beliefs about some of how I believe things and therefore how I secure them in myself and how open I can be about parts of them. And in some ways, those incremental things that are hard fought over hours of reflection and listening and reading. My hope is that they're going to save me in the long run, Yeah, that God is going to use That's them good. by his spirit to save me in the long run and to, and to make me helpful in the lives of my neighbors. Yeah. And yet, and they are kind of embarrassing too, but, but they're also not these cataclysmic changes. They're just kind of like, yeah, I mean, I always knew I had a preference for my own race, but I didn't realize how visceral it was. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, those sorts of things. And so I think that for, for white people, there is, you, there's a natural dismissiveness that, na- that comes up in us and um, certain things that explain black experience that are economic in nature or that talk about underclass pathologies and so on, even if those things are true observations of certain facts about the realities on the ground, it can so easily lead to a heart condition of being like, therefore, these people deserve it. And even if you don't believe the problem is systemic racism, primarily still the question remains, do you care that this huge portion of children believe they're not going to get anywhere no matter what they do Mm -hmm. or that they believe that you don't care about them or they believe that they have no stake in their own society or that they believe that even if you think it's false. And I, I just, I find myself struggling to care in the right way especially when these people are abstractions to me. Black children are abstractions to me. I'm just not around them very much. Yeah. And so overcoming the natural tendencies of the flesh in me, I just, they're really hard and I feel like it's so easy to be flippant. And so I just want to encourage my white friends, especially if you're politically conservative or libertarian, and you believe very strongly in personal responsibility and the responsibility of people closer to you rather than people further than you. And you naturally distrust very large governments that's I, I think that political set of views is perfectly defensible, but you need to know the poison that is specific to your beliefs, which is to believe that the people around you, that you've done your personal responsibilities, you have built social capital around yourself, you've built your human capital, and why haven't they? In a kind of heartless way. and. I feel like I, you have to imbue those views with a deep sense of humanity. Otherwise your politics will become your religion and you will lose sight of the compassion of Jesus for all people. Mm -hmm. Boom. And, and it's, it's a terrifying and humiliating process, but it's, I think it's necessary for godliness, especially in this moment. Mm
2: -hmm. And on the minority side of that, um, I think minorities should be going through that same level of reflection um, because we all are affected by sin. Um, But particularly in these conversations where um, given the American context, given the white and black dynamic um, that we're facing, as our white friends are learning and asking questions and wrestling with just how they're involved or just, yes, just how they're interacting. um, I think it is a responsibility of minorities to act charitably toward our white brothers and sisters as they are learning. Um, I know there will be several minorities who disagree with me on, on this point because they're like, we've been, we've been patient. We've been the ones that have been flexing towards white culture. Um, Why should we have to educate them uh, on us and how to engage with us? Um, But I, I think that question does not acknowledge just human relationship and human interaction beyond race. I think for anybody to learn and move forward in a relationship, um, to feel empathy, to understand a story, um, you're going to have to ask questions and they're going to have to be silly. And the other person is going to have to sacrifice and be like, okay, let me bring you along as best as I can. Um, and that is sacrifice on that person's part. It, it, it I would consider that sacrifice on the minorities part to say, okay, you just said something really foolish um, or you're really, really slow to get this um, and not say that that's okay, but to acknowledge effort and intentions and to still be charitable and hospitable. Um, Cause that's just an action that Christ calls us to be outside of this race conversation. Um, so, like, I, I, uh, I was in Minneapolis when George Floyd was killed um, and I was staying with a white friend. um, And as soon as I heard about George Floyd, my first thought was, oh, my, this city better get ready for things to just explode. And when I told that to the friend that I was staying with and then to another friend on the phone who's also white, they were like, really? You thought that this would happen? Like you thought these riots and stuff would, like you saw that coming. And um, one of them had said, well, this has just never happened before. So I I didn't know this has never happened before. Um, So what I know she meant was, in my context, in my city, during my time, this has not happened before. But my initial heart reaction to both of them was, what do you mean this never happened before? Like, this is a textbook response to, like, something that has been going on. Like, let's talk about Rodney King or and anything else. Um, mm-hmm. But I fully understand what they actually meant and their experiences. Just like, this is new for us. And so in that moment, I would find it my responsibility to be the charitable one. And not saying that they weren't charitable, but to extend that um, that ability to not be offended easily. Like, okay, let's walk through this. And so I do think that minorities hold um, a responsibility there, even if, even if we don't want to, which is hard to say. But that is my piece that I have said. Mm-hmm. So I am going to move us on to the next question, which I think we have started to touch on it, but-
3: Can I ask how- you that question?
2: Oh, you sure can. I think we were going to different questions, okay. but go for it. please.
3: Do you, oh, oh were you um which one were you going to?:
2: I was going back to how we've oh. seen justice pursued well historically and now. Um, but I'm happy to bring we can come back yeah. to that.
3: What do you prefer? I'll defer to you. you're the You're the moderator.:
2: oh, such power. Wow. Um, why don't, why don't we go with your question? Cause I think that still stays in this area and then we can start going to more, um, positive notes or uplifting notes, shall we say, by how we've seen justice pursued well. That sound good.
3: All right. Becca, thanks for sharing that. That was incredibly Mm -hmm. gracious and humble and insightful to hear you say that. And I Mm -hmm. sometimes feel like I don't deserve any sort of grace like that because I think I've I've for too long been idle, for too long been ignorant and complacent. And what you're saying is pure gospel. It is pure gospel. And uh, I think that's really noble. So that connects with another question. Uh, for some people in the church, pursuing racial justice or any sort of woke topics brings up feelings of suspicion and defensiveness. So, can you speak to someone who might be feeling some of those things? What would you say?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, my initial thought as to feeling defensive is when someone tells you you're wrong, the way that you are engaging with whatever you're doing. So in this conversation, the way that you are engaging with race is not correct. And that. It hurts to hear that you're wrong. It's hard to hear that you're wrong. And then it's particularly hard or confusing when in your own context, you don't know how you could have done better. It's not like there were these set guidelines, there were these rules, and you somehow, you missed them and you've just been ignoring them completely. Um, Those those haven't been set up. Um, And so when you are thinking, man, the minorities in my life... I love them. I love them to the extent that I like don't even see them as a minority really, but just someone in my family, which for the record, I know that this has been established, but minorities do enjoy you seeing them as minorities cuz that is something beautiful about them. Hmm. But that's another topic. Um but if you're just like I see you as you and um I have not participated in overt acts of racism and I, I think I ask people questions um, but I I don't have hate in my heart towards these people and um, so how can you tell me that I am doing wrong um, so I think that's where defensiveness and suspicion comes in because they're like whoa what do you mean what have I missed um, can you maybe repeat the second half of that question I just went off the defensiveness bit
3: yeah so I mean can you speak to someone who might be feeling some of those things—the the suspicion, the defensiveness, even like mm-hmm. feeling personally attacked, um, or maybe even feeling like—are like wondering, are you calling me a racist? Are you suggesting that I'm fill in the blank as far as like character flaws goes? You know what? What would you say to someone like that?
2: Mm-hmm. When um- When people have been wronged and oppressed for so long, um, when they have a bit of freedom or the opportunity to, um, when they have a voice or a power that um, they really feel like they need to grasp and take advantage of, um, it can be hard to temper that (laughs) um, and to express it to express that power and your voice that hasn't been there in, in a loving way. Um, And unfortunately you can have situations. I'm thinking of uh, um, the Rwandan genocide, for example Um, seems far-fetched, but um, when you have um, a majority and they're oppressing a minority and then that minority gets power, they will sometimes retaliate in ways where you're just like, That's exactly what was happening to you. Why are you?
1: Historically, almost every single time. Yes. It's an extremely predictable historical phenomenon.
2: Yes, exactly. Um, And so we're just, I think we're kind of wired to be like, all right, I have power. Let me assert my power. Um, And so I would be willing to bet that people who are feeling defensive um, or suspicious. Because they've probably been spoken to without generosity, and in, in some respect, um, and so I, I would initially, if I was talking to someone just one on one, I would probably say I'm really sorry where co- conversations have happened um, where you were trying, or maybe you just didn't know how you were coming across. And it did legitimately hurt the minority that you were hearing or that you were interacting with, but uh, they did not respond with as much grace as would have been helpful. Um, so then I would encourage them to have resilience and perseverance, just as my minorities have had, and just as we would encourage them to have. So just as I would tell mm. my Black brothers and sisters, I need you to continue to have these hard conversations with grace. I would ask that of white brothers and sisters. I am going to ask you to continue to delve into these conversations when they're mm-hmm. scary. I'm going to ask you to continue, even if you've had bad interactions in the past. Yeah. Um,
1: Becca, were you on the feed on Sunday when we did the AMA after Lloyd preached? Yes, I was like, how did you feel about that? reading that feed mm-hmm. and being seeing like a lot of these kind of like impertinent kind of questions that some were like some seemed more like kind of like help me understand and some were kind of like i don't think you're right and mm-hmm. like did it how did you respond to that were you mm-hmm.
2: i was so proud of lloyd you guys because he he yes. did respond so graciously i was like Okay, good job. I almost had to hold my breath every time, not because mm-hmm. I doubted Lloyd, but because I know how emotionally deep these things can run. So I was like, oh, he responds. Yeah. And, and,
1: I- and I mean, Lloyd just about broke down into tears when he said the exam- the main example people took issue with about him being mm-hmm. like arrested when he felt like the description was not sufficiently close to him and that they took him in front of his place of work. People were like, that's not really a great example of racism. And that, I mean, that was really tough for him. Mm-hmm. I think because we went over some of those other questions in the podcast after. Yeah, and you know, it was it was it was similar to that. But mm-hmm. but did you feel it? Like, because there were a couple people that actually wrote in and were like, "Man, I'm so I feel so discouraged looking at these questions being written."
2: Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. So yes, I think you could say that those questions were impertinent, but then my question back would be, who else are they going to ask these two? Are mm-hmm. they going to, are these right. questions just... Not be- Twitter. Right, and let's not. Yeah, Twitter, <laughs> no. Um, but, I mean, are we just going to let those questions sit and fester in their own hearts and minds and let them come up with their own conclusions? Um, or are we going to, like, mm-hmm. air them out, vet them out? And, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I would love for us to get to The point where somebody asks an impertinent question and there is enough love and trust in the relationship for someone to be like that was foolish what you just said was nonsense or unhelpful but let me see if i can help um and i would appreciate it if you wouldn't say such things in future or something like Mm. that
1: Um, or maybe even saying something like when you say that i fear there's some information you don't have Mm. right
2: See that's even nicer. That's you know I
1: mean?
2: nonsense.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good job. Yeah, because part I think part of the issue is I think that there are some more conservative white people that feel like there's a kind of arrogance to believing that because you are in the oppressed group, so to speak, that you're therefore omniscient. Hmm. And I mean, I've just I've heard enough nonsense from everybody that I'd, I that's not true. And also as a pastor, I've walked with people who have been really hurt sexually assaulted, lost somebody really tragically. Um, There's a certain kind of like a vindictive vengefulness that comes out of the hurt person Mm -hmm. that has all the clarity that anger gives with all of the confusion that trauma brings. And it's really humiliating and unhelpful. And, um, and people see that in other people And the traumatized person who's angry, doesn't see it in themselves. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're just being so honest And they're really they're really working on anger, and oftentimes they're saying things that are really insensitive and wrong. And but they feel that the trauma covers all, like because I've been hurt, I can do anything, and I'm not morally accountable for it. And what happens is they lose those people, those people that were ready to be their co mourners, or the people who are ready to be their their true helpers. Say, wait, this wait, no. But then, if you would disagree with someone in a rage, they tend to throw you out Mm
2: -hmm.
1: yeah so so i think that temperance is so important even if you're the victim if somebody who feels like you're among the victimized people the temperance to say okay here's the information you have or here's the thing that i think you're not holding in right proportion or here's the thing like you have to you're you're still it's still your job to win your brother over Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and i i know that's tedious it's a tedious thing
2: it is it's tiring and i think it was very helpful for me to hear from another um African American person, that uh, there's also a time for it, and that time does not have to be immediately. Um, so, for example, mm-hmm. when emotions are running really high r- after an incident like George Floyd, um, mm-hmm. I was angry. Well, actually, after Ahmaud Arbery, I was I was wrecked uh, in a negative sense. I just I mm-hmm. sobbed and immediately a lot. Um, And that was not the time for me to be talking to anybody Mm -hmm. and fielding their questions, their sincere questions. Um, And I heard an African-American speaker say, are you taking care of yourself spiritually, Mm -hmm. (laughs) emotionally, physically? Are you taking care of yourself? Um, And um, you know, I, I was in several race conversations the week right after George Floyd happened, and I broke down <laughs> after a week, And my black father was like, Becca, I just need you to stop for a little bit. I want you to go do something that's like good for you. It's like, go eat Korean food and watch a movie because that seems to be your thing. And that was really helpful. And so our, I I think it, yes, it is important for minorities to know it is good to engage and it's good to be charitable, but that doesn't always come right away. And, um, can you care for yourself to enable yourself to be that person, um, for the long run? Mm. That was also helpful.
1: Yeah. I think that, I think that is helpful for people to know that like, it's not your responsibility. Like if you're a minority person, yes, it's true. If you want things to get better, you're going to have to be, you're going to have to do that work it's also true that fixing the world is not your job mm-hmm. and you don't have to do it yourself. And you know what I mean? Like I, I think sometimes these, these things are both are all true at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I know, if, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure Lloyd was pretty worn out after the weekend, oh my gosh, yeah. you know, and you know, but he'll get some rest. He'll get back on that horse. And mm-hmm. cause I know he believes in both racial justice and um, the reconciliation of the body of Christ to be one people without the dividing walls of hostility. You know what I mean? And if you believe in that, you do have to be on the horse sometimes. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. You know? And I just want to say, Rebecca, your, your mm-hmm. response is like consistently seasoned with grace and generosity. I feel like you're an exemplar of how to have these conversations gracefully. And um, yeah, I just want to commend you for that. That's amazing. I feel like super convicted and like encouraged in a weird way by the way you're framing your responses and, I just want to say too, to like to the white community who's like who has the, the kind of questions that came up in the feed on Sunday, like wondering like, well, is that really an instance of racism? Is that really a case mm-hmm. of like structural or systemic racism? Mm-hmm. Like I think it's important that we create space to have those kinds of questions, but I just want to encourage people like just like be super cautious and ultra kind in the way you frame it. When you're dealing with mm-hmm. a group of people who have historically been oppressed, who have historically been mistreated in multiple ways, there's kind of a presumption. I, I would argue a presumption in favor of claims that there is a current injustice. And so when a person of color or somewhat of minority talks about their own experience and they're framing it in terms of it being unjust and unfair, I would just say, like, if it's not clear to you immediately how it was unjust or how it was unfair, don't just like go in with like your question guns blazing. Like, mm-hmm. slow down. Mm-hmm. remember the history. Remember the context. Remember that you're dealing with a human being. And frame your question in a way that's inviting. Frame your question in a way that that um, like gives presumptive regard for their story. I mean, even just say something like, hey, Mm -hmm. thanks for sharing that story. Like, thanks for being super vulnerable and raw. Can you help me understand a little bit more about it? Can you help me understand the injustice behind it? I really want to see. And I think when we frame questions like that, we're conveying to these people that we want to trust, we want to believe, and we want to learn. And I think, again, there's like a theme running through a lot of this conversation about the importance of learning. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I I think my experience too has been that We don't assume other people, we don't assume suffering in the lives of other people enough. You know, there's this old quote from Philo the Jew from the first century where he says, Be kind to everyone, for everyone fights a great battle. And it's very easy to think that other, you know, natural envy causes us to feel like other people's lives are probably going fine, but I've been hurt in my life. And human beings, because of the horrific curse of sin, Mm has created a genocide of human suffering and pain throughout the world, through every age, among all peoples and among some peoples from other peoples and people have been through a lot in And I, I, frankly, I think in the society we're in right now with some things that have happened in the last 80 years with the human family and stuff like that, I think we're actually multiplying traumas. Mm. I think that what I'm seeing among gen, not just millennials, but now the Gen Z and so much, there's just an incredible amount of trauma. Just incredible amount, yeah. And I don't. I think some of that is a higher level than in the past. I think some of it's that we're not wired for twenty four seven social media and some things like that. I think anxiety and so on is traumatic as well. But but I but I I think that we just don't do a good like most of the African Americans I've talked to have a story, or at least one, if not multiple stories, that would would affect your heart if you listened to them, and you should just assume that. I mean, you shouldn't presume to stereotype them, but you should just assume there's stuff that you don't know that is not positive Yeah, in the backgrounds of basically everyone. And among people who have historic, who have had ext- historic relationships with injustice, maybe more than that, mm-hmm. you know, almost everybody that I talk to, like you get them going and there are horrible things that have happened to them. And also they're mostly functional and that's, That's the thing. I've also found just relative to what Joel said about listening to people. Sometimes you just got to wait. Cause sometimes when people tell a story to you the first time, it evokes a lot of emotion for them and you should try to meet that emotion with emotion. Mm. And then another time say, Hey, remember that story you told me? Mm. Because you see, they, they flooded themselves emotionally in the retelling of the story. And that's not a great time for them to answer questions analytically. Right. But if later on you say, remember that story you told me, there are a couple of details. I want to ask you a question about it. Can I see if that person can jump in analytically from the side in the story without like kind of retelling it entirely. Sometimes they're just in a way better place emotionally to, to speak about their own experience analytically than if they just recounted a story. Usually if they just recount a story, you just don't want to do That's it. good. Yeah. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. So then going off of that suggestion, um, of coming back uh, to learn more at a better time, uh, could could you both just talk about ways that uh, either historically or presently you have seen Christians pursuing justice well? And we're talking currently about race, but perhaps you've seen justice pursued well in other areas that could also be applied.
1: Yeah, I'll say a few. I think Joel may be a little bit more immersed in some of the. Things happening at the moment in certain sectors, but, um, you know, Jordan Peterson was one of the first people I heard talk about this a lot. Which is the we naturally psychologically assume ourselves back into history as in solidarity with the heroes. So, if I was in Soviet Russia, I would have been with Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If I was, you know, if I was in New York, you know, at the time of abolition, I would have been with, you know with Frederick Douglass and and so on, right? Like Like I would have been on the right side of history, always, 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 right? And the answer is no, you wouldn't. No, you would not have. And you should see yourself as a person who would have done just what everybody else did, either not getting involved or actively engaging in injustice. I actually think that I would go so far with this as to say that you should do that even if you are literally from the group that was oppressed, That had you been on the other side, you would have done just what those people did. And in fact, in American history, it is in fact true that there were black people in America's history that owned slaves when they became wealthy. Right. But I I think, so I think it's easy to look at. That's why I think Tisby's book is fairly helpful. The color of compromise because he just drags your faith through all the negative stuff and he doesn't talk about the positive stuff. So there's nothing for you to be like, well, I would have been like him. Like he just, he's just like, this is what happened. You probably would have been like them. Right. Right. So I think that that's really important, but it is the fact in history that there have been times where there has been movements towards justice. But I think one of the things that's important to recognize is it's never perfect. Like, it's never like the full biblical norm of the kingdom of God. It's always an improvement and often a jerky one at that, right? Like Tisby points out that there were people that were for abolition who were racist, they believed in the, in the abject inferiority of African Americans, but they believed still that African Americans were people enough that they shouldn't be enslaved,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right? And one of the things I actually didn't like about Tisby's book is how it felt like he was kind of sneering at those people. And I'm like, well, it was, you know, for the African Americans who were free, they were, they were happy for those people to be abolitionists, even though racists, because it was a huge step forward. And so I think what we have to keep thinking in our generation is future generations will still judge us somehow. The, the, the young people always will. But the question is, can we, there's got to be a way to take a step forward in the present in some way. And I think that in a lot of ways you could, you, you could order these in a couple of ways. One is experiments of action that seem to produce success first. And secondly, strong actions towards solidarity and reconciliation. So I would put like John Perkins in that second category, Mm -hmm just really, really focused on reconciliation first and then action out of it. And then you could say that like people who, there's been a lot of experiments like with, especially with African-Americans in poverty in America, like trying to create like dream zones. And they like, there's all these experiments people are trying to see if they can make a difference on a small level that then maybe that thing can be expanded to a larger level, right? And then I I think you could argue there's a third category, which would just be advocacy where people people are engaging in court cases or they're doing sorts of things that they think might move things in the right direction. And I think Christians have been involved in that too. So those are the three areas I would say people focused on reconciliation, trying to do healing work among people, experimentation, trying to try something to see if it works and helps people and advocacy people trying to do kind of these bigger picture issues or policy kinds of things that lead to better um, precedents or those kinds of things. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm no historian. I'm so so illiterate when it comes to history. Um, uh, but some of my I think some of the most formative conversations I've had have been with Maggie, who is a high pointer, and she is a historian. Um, she's finishing Maggie. up her PhD at she UW cool. Madison. I never
2: get to talk to her. She cool.
3: She is great. Yeah, yeah.
1: Maggie. No.
3: So so I, I've learned a lot about the involvement of Christians in social justice just from conversations with maggie so if you see her around church give her a shout out ask her about some of this stuff but i mean like the early i mean
1: she's especially 20th century that's right yeah yeah and
3: even like some she does she's yeah she's focused too on like the reconstruction era after the civil war but i mean like look christians were highly highly involved in the abolition movement um in the 19th century and even some of the freed slaves who were part of the abolition movement, Frederick Douglass and others, were very devout Christians, and their Christian faith played a crucial role in why they why they were concerned and why they objected to slavery. And mm-hmm. I also just want to like champion women and like the involvement of women historically, Christian women in social justice. Um, like the women's temperance movement in the late nineteenth century was kick butt like that there's just some phenomenal things happening. They're very high concern for the family. And during the reconstruction area, um, like the scent societies, not like scent doesn't smell, but like scent as in money, which was like run, run by like evangelical women. They were very concerned about educating children and especially about educating black children whose families had been ravished by slavery. And, and then, you know, even just into like the 20th century, um, I'm just thinking about the way that a lot of evangelical women, even in the 70s, were championing like women women's liberation. Um, and even in the animal rights movement, a lot of people think that the animal rights movement started in the 70s. There's actually an animal welfare movement that started in the mid to late 19th century. And it was almost entirely driven by people with Christian convictions, a lot of them women, and a lot of them very concerned with abolition as well. And it's just an interesting little piece about history that wherever we see concern with the suffering of say minorities, we also see concern with the suffering of animals and vice versa. And these people are like through and through Christians who are driving this. Um, And I, and I think that that bit about suffering is super important. I mean, when Frederick Douglass would go around talking about abolition, he would often bring his former chains with him. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And there's something super important about appealing to moral sentiments in all of this. About appealing to the suffering of people, and I think one interesting aspect of some of the history of like Christian involvement and social reformation is the appeal to suffering and pain. Um, and again, we have a lot of minorities. We have we have freed slaves who are who are using that sort of rhetoric. We have women who are using that rhetoric and, and like on, on behalf of animal welfare. And one reason that's interesting for me as a philosopher is that in recent philosophical history, there's been an emphasis on reason over sentiment. And so people like Kant and Descartes uh, say, look, if we want to do moral theorizing properly, we've got to like keep our moral emotions out of the picture. We've got to we've got to emphasize moral reason and start with these abstract principles. And I just think that's such a wrong way of doing things. It's not like it's it's maybe the better way of saying it is that it's like half truth. And uh, one thing that's impressed me about the history of Christian involvement in recent social justice movements is the emphasis on the suffering of image bearers and the suffering of God's creatures and the appeal to moral sentiments. Um, There's something really beautiful about that, and I think we need that as part of our rhetoric, and that's why we need to hear the stories of oppressed people. We need to hear their personal stories. It's not enough to just read about the history of oppression, although I highly recommend it, and I think it's one of the reasons we don't fully see racial injustice in America is because we don't know the history. But in addition to the history, we need to hear the stories, the lived experience, get our moral sentiments working, activate those moral faculties because that's going to put us in touch with moral truth, I would argue. And of course, temper that with theology, temper that with history, but yeah, I think that's all I had to say about that. What What about? You?
1: Yeah, I th- I think for some conservative people, they would they would be concerned about that because if you really get kind of whipped up into the, those feelings, there's the fear that you'll get manipulated by people who use those. But I I think it's, I think it's a little bit like refusing to fall in love because when you really, really love someone, you can be manipulated by them and, and other people can manipulate you in that relationship. And you, it's not worth not falling in love because you can be taken advantage of. That's exactly of. right. You have, to, you have to do it. You have to act towards love for love's sake. And then you have to be wise enough to know when you're being manipulated. Yeah. And then choose the loving thing at that point. You know what I mean? And so I think, Yeah, One of the things I was shocked, I was was surprised by was at that march two Sundays ago when one of the speakers at the end asked how many people had had a black person in their house for dinner. And I just have to admit that I thought that was the dumbest question. Because I was like, who would come to a march, like literally come to a Black Lives Matter march and have never eaten dinner with a black person? Like how, like, and then like 40% of the people raised their hand. (laughs) And I was like what are you crazy but yeah man and i was just like you know that's i don't get that but like that's a lot of people's experiences and so it's hard to do good things in justice name when you're just that isolated yeah. you know
3: what about you rebecca so, i mean what 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 stands know. out to you as far as uh, history of justice and christianity's involvement in that
2: gosh I mean, my first thought is, I think what many people have heard already, but just how people can be very disillusioned by the history of Christianity and how Christianity has been used to perpetuate very, very horrible things. Um, And yet Christianity has been used to perpetuate really amazing things, seeking justice, seeking wholeness, seeking shalom. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. just... It's the embodiment of what we believe that we are so broken and we can twist things uh, when we are not looking at our heavenly father and his ways, which are higher than our ways and his thoughts, which are higher than his thoughts and relying on his spirit to move us. Um, And so that dichotomy just, it it just shakes me to look at it historically, because you can come up with a terrible thing from Christianity as well as a good thing um, anytime. but the, I think the thing that has pulled me or has been most most helpful in some of these race conversations is when somebody pulls me out of the race conversations enough to say racism and these prejudices, it is a sin and it is a sin just like all these other sins, mm-hmm. not saying that they're all in the same playing field or they all are uh, experienced to the same, but the fact that we have a God who has said sin is wrong that said he is going to bring justice. Um, and, uh, Mm -hmm. that has created a means for us to confess that sin and to become more and more righteous, to become more and more holy and not live in that sin. And so pulling us out of it to greater extents. So people who have experienced, um, hurt and brokenness in ways outside of racism can still empathize and relate and love um, with those who are experiencing that sin now. Um, So that's been helpful. Yeah.
1: I think it's important to make sure that we don't, I don't want to leave people without concrete examples in the present, even in our city Mm -hmm. related to doing justice. Well, I, I think first of all, if you are on the political right or left as your general convictions about how society functions, how human beings flourish you can still participate in a way that advocates for justice among people who are historically oppressed within that so for example there's a lot of conservative christians that has have given a few hundred thousand dollars a year to carenet because they hate abortion but they don't like that black women are often often find themselves in situations where they have pregnancies without a man involved enough and they want an option to have their children but they need a lot of help and support right and so some people have supported that. And I'll just, I'll tell you what, the African American women who give testimonies every year and who go through that ministry are incredibly thankful mm-hmm. to those conservative, predominantly white Christians who have supported that ministry. And, and, and my, a lot of their motivation may be more that they don't want children to be aborted than that. They want black women to have an, an option, but I think more and more, they're understanding that the two go, go together and they cheer for those women and people volunteer to help those women. And my wife woke up in the middle of the night on Mondays for years and Getting phone calls, I think I should. I think I need to get an abortion. There's no way I can do this. And she was like, you know, just why don't you sit down with somebody, talking, do an ultrasound, and slow it down and think for. Oh, I mean, would you let? Would you? Would you want to go and just visit, Karenette? And most of the women who said yes went. And, and and you know, my my wife did that for years when she had little kids keeping her up in the middle of the night, and it was her way as a mom with three kids trying to participate in justice in our society and then other people are go um do things more in line with more liberal policies they they get involved in the public school because they think supporting the public school is the most important thing so they go and they volunteer and they read there and other people are kind of like well i don't want money taken away from public school for these other private schoolish experiments i want to just help the public school right great go do that right but then when marcio starts a private school because he wants to function on different principles and teach people about Jesus and, and and do things that he can't get some of the public elementary schools to do for those kids, but he wants to try to, that are helpful. God bless him. Right? And, the, and so, you there's this old, it's actually a conservative principle, but it's called letting a thousand flowers bloom. That instead of putting all our weight into this like one big flower, right? It's more like a, a field of wildflowers. That if all kinds of people do different goods, but are truly goods out of love for others, you get all these interconnected goods, which raises the tide for everyone. As all people commit themselves to good, I think that if people really pursue Jesus and pursue justice, even if their polit- no nobody polit- changes their political philosophy, our world and lives will get better. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean that every political view or policy view is created equal and is equally right. We still need to have those arguments mm-hmm. and try to be as driven by the word of God and good science as possible in integrating these things. But I think that if people try to do good, we'll get all these different flowers blooming, whether it's whether it's lighthouse school or high point school having a lot of vouchers that they're opening this year so that kids can go, which minority families are going to use, whether it's going to read in the public school system whether it's to do any of these other different things, whether to really try to be a multi-ethnic church so that people of different ethnicities can get to know each other well so that when somebody's looking to hire somebody, that person's name comes to mind, whether it's a guy in our church who somebody in his department was going to get fired because he wasn't making it, a young black man. He stood up to his supervisors and said, we haven't taught this guy. He's, a first, he's first generation out of poverty. It's our job to teach him what we want. Let's take some more time to do it. And he spent five months of extra time at work teaching this young guy stuff that he didn't know because of where he was from so that he could succeed and support his family and be a dad and all that kind of stuff. And um, so there are a lot of ways the church has done stuff. And I, I think it's important as the church that we recognize you're not going to get thanked for it by the secular world. They're not going to acknowledge you and they have no idea what we're doing. Like at the march, um, there was this African-American woman who goes to church. She's really great. She's actually been on our podcast. She's a wonderful young woman. And she said, you know, white churches should pay for black churches' buildings because they struggle. Black churches struggle to come up with the money to pay for their buildings. Okay, great. She probably has no idea that High Point has given tens of thousands of dollars to her own church Mm -hmm. so that they could make payments on their buildings and stay afloat when they were between pastors. Mm -hmm. Right? But... It's true. We did. And we're going to keep doing it. And we may not pay the entire mortgage of one African-American church, but we've contributed to the mortgages of three different ones to the tunes of more than $10,000 in the last couple of years. And we'll keep doing it. And so we're just going to get in the game, stay in the game and get in these partnerships. I think it's one of the things that has changed in the last 10 years at high point is focusing on the friendships and the trust between partners. And then, seeing where it goes. And I think and for me, it's been a lot supporting African-American and Latino leaders and what they want to try, because I'm willing to stick with them. Even if what they want to try fails, as long as we learn something from it. Yeah. Because if they, if they want to try something and they think if we would just try this, it would work. Then if it works, then they were right. And and these kids are helped and it's great. And if they fail, they realize that, well, man, policy is a lot harder than we thought. <laughs> And then it changes it. We go, okay, so we failed and you failed. We've all failed. (laughs) So let's, did we learn anything? Or is there something, something somebody else is doing that's succeeding that we can try? Where do we go from here? And I found that when you partner with people like that, you let them try their thing and you help them pay for it. You, you always win because either they succeed and you win or they fail where you failed and you come up with a new way to move forward together and you're closer to each other now. So either way you win. And so I think, I think that's been helpful too. doing justice by actually working multi ethnically between local churches mm-hmm. and even out more. I see some, one of the things people don't understand is when I was quite young, so I'm 40, I'm going to be 43 in a week. Oh, happy early birthday. When, yeah. When I was younger, denominational boundaries kept some of this stuff from happening. As denominational boundaries have continued to kind of fall off, people not being so focused on their denominational church identity, partly because the church has lost some of its place in the country, people have been more willing to reach across lines of to different denominations because in a lot of historically black churches are in historically black denominations. And so what that's allowed at a place like High Point is churches that like in the 1970s, our church would have really struggled with partnering with. It's not even a thing. So, Harold Rayford's church, now James Hawkins leads there at the Faith Place. um, They're like international Pentecostal churches. Like, the people who planted High Point Church would never have supported an international Pentecostal church. People at High Point never batted an eyelash. They were like, does he believe in the Bible and in Jesus? Yes. Is he kind of for the Nicene Creed, generally speaking? Yes, he is. Okay, great. What does he want to do? I mean, it was like it was very ecumenical in that sense, in the good sense of the word. And I think that that, that has changed, and I think more is changing now. And so I think that we have done some good things, but I think that there's going to be even more opportunities. I'm, I'm very I'm very bullish on the on the future of the church, even just in Madison, working together.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: but I think it's important. For example, let me say one more thing, just to high point people.
2: Go for it.
1: Um, there's a cost to those goods and religious goods and services you receive, right? If I spend six hours in a week and, and Mike spends twelve hours in a week outside of our church working on these relationships, supporting these pastors, figuring out what they need, that's time I don't spend on my sermon. That's time I'm not spending reading theology or pastoring you. And so, one of the things that you actually are already doing injustice, and it's not. I don't. Want, don't you feel like that's all you should do? In one of the concentric circles here, one of the things you're doing is you're, you're, not, you're letting me do these things and you're letting Mike do these things. and um, we, you know, You're letting Becca come and train at High Point for a while and learn some stuff so that she can go out and do things more effectively. And, and these are ways that we do that. And so I hope that I, as a church, we'll continue to be a church, very generous with our staff's time and our time and our money in places where we think investments in justice can be made, especially where what we're looking for is investments of justice and gospel together. That's what we're looking for. And where we find those, we want to, we want to support them. I had, a, I had an African-American pastor, not, well, I'm sorry, not an African-American, an African pastor come to me just today at a meeting and said, I've been hoping to see you in person for weeks. I appreciate so much what your church has done for our church. He said, I we've been giving food and helping to pay some of the rent, some of our folks. And we, I had, I had a couple of white pastors come to me and tell me we shouldn't be doing this because then our people won't go back to work and they'll become lazy. And, the, and those churches didn't give us anything. He said, but, but we, we were able to help our people because of you guys. And we're so thankful and our people are hard workers and they can't wait to get back to work. But in this interim, we were able to give, give food to them and some snacks to their kids and to give them encouragement, to know that people care about them. And so we didn't, we have not changed the disenfranchisement of black people in America, but we did it. We, we allowed it not to get worse for a few families for a couple of months. You know what I mean? And that Jesus, Jesus said, remember this, Jesus talked a lot about justice and us being part of it. He also said that if you ever give a cup of cold water in his name to someone, you will never lose your reward. Mm -hmm. So even if we, if we struggle in having macro success, You just remember as a Christian, every time you do anything for everyone, including justice, care, and empathy for those who feel disenfranchised and hurt and feel like they don't have a stake in their society and that people don't care about them. When you do something for them, Jesus said, you're doing it for him and you will never lose your reward. And I I think that that can give us the hope we need to to do little things until we can identify bigger things, until we can identify better things and go from there. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that was kind of a longer monologue.
2: Well, great. I don't actually feel the need to add anything to that. So, Joel, do you have final comments? Final response?
3: I have a final question.
2: That wasn't an um, option. I'm mean, kidding. Go for it.
3: Yeah, <laughs> um, and if you don't, I mean, if you don't want to answer it, I thought it maybe be fun to ask you this question. So, Becca, I'm wondering, like, in a few decades from now, as we look back on some of the things that have been happening in America, we look at the civil unrest, we look at the protests, we look at the outcry against racial injustice and the attention it's getting across America. What what do you hope to see happen? Like if you could look back and be like, this happened, the church did this, my church did this, what would you say? What would you want to see happen on the other end of these?
1: outcries.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Tell us right now, right now, Becca.
2: <laughs> Did you know that I'm an internal processor, Nick? I, know, helpful. So. Um, I am very relationally oriented. If I am hoping to see a change, um, that's usually where I'm going to look first. Um, I also think that's one of the harder things to do. <laughs> um, and so my hope would be that um, people were resilient, uh, courageous, and gracious enough to build relationships that they would not have been compelled to build prior to this, and that that would form that would form bridges um, to to build the trust that you need to then enact all of all of these other things, right? Um, it's by relationship that you get connected to different organizations where you can help. It's by relationship that you have empathy to even want to help to begin with. It's by relationship that you see um, the grace and love and forgiveness of God come in when you have all these conversations that are hard and yet you stick with that relationship. And you know it is only by God's grace um, and his work on my soul that we are still pushing through this Um I just i I see a lot of that happening in relationship first. Um, so that's really what I would like to see. um and um yeah, ideally, that would then spread, which takes ugh, that's so long. like it's to go from relationships to then see an impact where Madison is no longer the worst city in the country for African Americans to live right mm-hmm. that that would be a great goal to have. That's going to take some time. That's going to take a lot of time. And the hard or sad fact is that sin is going to be with us for for until Jesus comes back, right? Um, and so I don't anticipate that this race thing is going to go away, which is why I'm like, please be resilient. Please be in this for the long haul and do it kindly. Um, but it can absolutely get better. Um, and so I would hope that it would get better relationships. Yay. Yay. It's
3: amazing.
1: Yeah. All right. Guys, thanks so much for being here. I, I just want to, I want to thank Becca again, cause I sprung this on her kind of last minute. So Becca, thanks for being here. You did a great job. I really appreciate that you taking some time please thank the upper house for whatever freedom they gave you from your work responsibilities Mm -hmm. today we love them and obviously thank you joel as well for being here and lending some expertise and historical background and stuff um yeah if you go to high point um uh, i I know you can't see joel right now but like sometime you'll bump into him you'll figure out who he is and um feel free to ask him about some of the research stuff he's done in concepts of privilege and so on. If you you don't understand the concepts of like white privilege or what people mean when they say white supremacy, I think that he's really open to trying to explain what people mean by that, different versions of it and so on, so that you can deal with some of these concepts that you might feel are getting thrown at you, but that you don't even know what people mean by them, but they still want you to behave in a certain way on the basis of them. Hmm. So I know that he has a lot of the patience and interest in his whole job is to figure out how to explain things clearly, because that's what philosophy is supposed to be about. So um
3: Yeah, and you can yeah, check out so, my blog, uh Joel Bolivian at blogspot.com where I have some really simple posts and vlogs about privilege. Um so yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a really important
1: B-A-L-L-I-V-I-A. That is
3: exactly right. That's how you spell. Yeah.
1: Bolivian.
2: or on Instagram under ethics chats,
3: right? Oh dang. Edits. Thank you. Yes. Ethics chats. Yeah. Gotcha. Follow me on Instagram. yeah. Also,
1: if you're a student, Joel is involved in apologetics group. When do you guys meet? You want,
3: we meet during the that? school year. Uh, yeah, usually we meet at Sorry. upper house. It's the best place to do apologetics on campus. So yeah, usually during the weeknight, uh, if you're a student or even if you're not a student, like we would love to have you. So stay tuned for emails, um, or you could probably find us on the RSO, uh, page, um, under Mm -hmm. Ratio Christie.
1: Yeah. If you, if you email Highpoint, we will also connect you with Joel. So Joel, again, thanks so much. Becca, thanks so much. I hope this was helpful for you guys. Remember, um, you know, none of us are, you know, the, um, the confidence of all truth and and perfection um but hopefully some of the things we said will have stirred something in you or able to have a conversation with somebody or help you gain an insight that the holy spirit can use to lead you to something closer to the future we're all we're all many things at the same time and moving towards something better in christ so i hope that this is helpful for you we'll see you guys next time
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.